We have a good father, don't we? I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're beginning a new series today, and I have to confess that Ecclesiastes is perhaps one of my favorite books. It's one of those books, though, that if somebody were to sit down and read it to you, and you didn't know it was part of the Bible, you'd probably say, where did that come from, and just write it off. As you turn there, um, I don't know if you heard this past week, it's official. High school sports now are wide open to whoever wants to compete. Gender no longer is an issue. Alaska is the first state to allow someone who's been born male but identifies as female to compete as a female in high school state finals. And they place third. Now put that alongside and it pales in comparison to what also happened this past week to a Pakistani woman who burned her daughter alive because she married against the wishes of the family. It's called an honor killing. There's about a thousand women every year that die in Pakistan when they violate their laws on love and marriage. The violation is they choose to marry someone other than their parents have deemed for them to marry. When you start hearing news, like what's going on in Pakistan, you think our world seems a bit off, doesn't it? And yet, it depends who you talk to. Some think that we're actually getting it all together finally. It depends upon their perspective, how they view history, how they view life. Now, I think Ecclesiastes relates to these kind of issues we're facing today. In fact, Ecclesiastes addresses the question of why. It's part of what we call wisdom literature. It's the practical nitty-gritty. It really looks at answering the question, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? And yet, if you were to do on-the-street interviews, downtown Lancaster, ask 100 people, Different people, what is the meaning of life? I am sure you get a hundred different answers. But Jesus comes along and says things like this. When you think about life, what does it profit anyone if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? Now what's unusual about Ecclesiastes is God is totally silent. We don't hear him mentioned at all. And it's the monologue of one man. It was written a thousand years before Christ walked the earth, and I think it's a brilliant book. And I think in every way it applies to what we are going through today in terms of asking some critical and key questions. So let's begin. I'm going to do an introduction this morning, and we're going to look at the first three verses because it really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, and you can follow with me on the screen. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, in case you didn't get his point, all is vanity. What does a man gain, or a woman, gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, I hope this week sometimes you take the time to read the book. And when you read the book, you're going to have to get a different framework than we usually have. Think of it as a journal. Think of 
It is someone writing down a journey, trying to find the answers to the question, what is the meaning of life? Now, this person identified in verse 1, we know Solomon. And there's a lot said about Solomon's scripture. His dad was King David. His mother was Bathsheba. So we know his father was a murderer and his mother was adulterer. Some family issues there. God granted Solomon one day one wish. And so Solomon thought about anything he could have, and he asked for wisdom. And God was so pleased that he gave him so much more than just wisdom. And Solomon reigned for 40 years. It was a season of peace and prosperity. He oversaw the building of the temple, which took seven years. He oversaw the building of his house, which took 13 years. Now, which do you think was bigger? World leaders would come to seek his advice because he was known as the wisest. In fact, the New Testament describes him as only second to Jesus in terms of wisdom. But world leaders would come to him seeking his advice. And in this process, it in part led him to a very complicated family life. Where he began to slide away from God was when these kings would come and they'd make peace treaties. And part of the peace treaty meant that he would marry the daughter of the king. So a wife came along with the deal. And, of course, all her gods. 700 wives, to be exact. Now, some of you are thinking he's wise and married 700 ladies. Didn't stop there. He married an additional 300 slave girls. So he had 1,000 wives. Put it in context. He could have breakfast, lunch, and supper with a different wife every single day, and it would take him a year to get through all of them. A thousand wives. We know that Solomon, based upon this, was an adulterer. He also was an idolater because he allowed these other gods to come into his house. Some of them included child sacrifice. But he permitted or was permissive to allow these things into this house he took 13 years to build. Now you know why it took 13 years. A thousand different families? I mean, wow. One of the things we're going to get into in this book is what I call drift. And drift happens so easily. Drift happens when we get our eyes off God and we get our eyes on something else and we actually believe that our ways are better than God's ways. And, and there's this shift from hearing God's voice to our voice, and this downward spiral begins in our minds and in our hearts. And this isn't anything new historically. Paul writes about this in Romans 1. In Romans 1, verse 21 and 22, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now look at that progression. And if you want to kind of put a, an analogy around this, think about marriage. And you can sit there and say, you know, although we know we're married, we don't honor each other as husband and wife. We don't give thanks for each other as husband and wife. And what happens? Our minds start drifting. Our minds become futile. Futile means it's the similar word that we found in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities means empty. They're foolish hearts. After our mind goes, our hearts, what happens? They get dark. And then we think, actually, the choices we are making are smart choices. 
but they're foolish choices. And that's true with anything in any relationship in any organization. You start drifting away from the core. It affects your mind and it affects your heart. Now later on in Romans, Romans 1, 24, 25, here's a consequence. Here's what happens with drift. It says, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, their desires. They just followed impulsively what they wanted to do rather than thinking through a process to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because, and here's what they did, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever ever and ever. Amen. See, in drift, we have this tendency to redefine truth. We have a tendency, even as Christians, to redefine Christianity according to our tastes and our preferences and our church traditions and our cultural norms. In drift, we like to make Jesus into someone we're a bit more comfortable with. G.K. Chesterton writes these words. When a man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships anything. And he finds nothing worthy of his worship. That is a really good summary of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, which Solomon wrote many of the Proverbs, 14 verse 12, says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So when I look at Ecclesiastes in some way, to me, it's a story of a prodigal. A prodigal is someone who leaves and then come home. And so we see Solomon, who's born into affluence, and we see him slowly drifting away from the ways of God. And later he returns to God. Early in his life, he got it right. Somewhere in the middle, there was drifts. In the end, he says this, if you want to be meaningful, nothing rivals intimacy with God. But this story, this journal, he sets out, he dedicates his life to what is the meaning of life. Now think about Solomon for a moment, because he had no limitations on his resources. He was king. He could make the rules. He had the power, he had the money, and he had the time to do anything and to reach anything he wanted. There wasn't anything he could not guess. There was no distance between his desires and reality. But he's telling us up front that even though he pursued, and we're going to see what he pursued in a moment, going back to these verses. In Ecclesiastes 1, what did he say? How did he start it? Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's a hard word to translate. But it says this journey left him empty. And I believe this was written in his old age. And I think he's writing to young people. And he's saying, don't follow my path. I'm going to be transparent. Here is my honest biography. That I tried all these things. And we're going to look at those down through the next several months. And it left me empty and shallow when life's apart from God. So his opening statement, it's the Hebrew word, habel. It's a hard word to boil down. In fact, if you look at translations, some will say meaningless, some will say vanity, some will say emptiness. Some will use the word vapor because, you know, vapor dissipates very quickly. But it's found approximately 38 times. 
Depending upon your translation, it might be 37. But there's another critical phrase in this passage, and it's the phrase under the sun. It's found 29 times. As you read this, you're going to see this over and over and over again. See, under the sun is his viewpoint. He says, let's disconnect light from God. Let's just put God out of the picture, and let's pursue this question about what is the meaning of life? Life as I see it, not how God sees it. And so that is what Ecclesiastes is about. He says, I pursued life, setting God aside. Here's my summary statement. It's empty, it's meaningless, it's useless, it's a vapor. And he's going to go on to argue about how these experiences led him to those points. But here's the problem when we view life under the sun. Here's the problem when we view life from our experience. If you're going to throw aside God's word in favor of human experience, which experience are we going to trust? And that's exactly our current dilemma in our culture. It's why we're so tribal. We have little factions of group that gather around thinking how they think, and we are so divided. Divided in that we can no longer sit down and disagree but we have to persuade people to our opinion. And if they won't, we're just going to write them off. We're going to call them names and we're going to create laws that will silence them from opposition. Now, let me give you an example of this. And I hope this is clear. I had a better, longer chance to explain this in Sunday school this morning because we were discussing some issues, but look at our educational system and look how it has fooled us over the last century. Here's what we've been taught. Now, what I want you to do is get your little finger out like this, okay? And put it right here. And here's what we've been taught. Generation after generation does what? It progressively gets better. Caveman, modern man. You know, out west when they had nothing except outhouses, now we get indoor plumbing. And so in our educational system, it's it's always been this way, that through generation after generation, things have progressively gotten better. We are more enlightened than they were 10 years ago. We are smarter than they were 30 years ago. We are more intelligent than they were 100 years ago. That's what we've been taught. Now, C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. (laughs) It's really a position of arrogance. Just because we might have different toys doesn't mean we're better. So this is what we've been taught. And life without God, that's the belief. Biblically, history goes this way. It's cyclical. In fact, another phrase you're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been? (laughs) It's always been there. And so cyclically, our history goes this way. We follow God, we drift, we get away from God, we hit the bottom, we do a lot of stupid things, we cry out to God, we get back with God, and it just keeps going. In other words, there is nothing that we are experiencing today inside our culture that hasn't been experienced before. I know we have a hard time believing that, but when you read history, and, well, think of it this way. When you study the cyclical versus progressive thinking, 
This is going to be a dangerous statement. <laughs> it's why in politics we have a progressive thinking that says we need a new constitution because that one was relevant for their day. This one's relevant for our day. But here's what's even more scary. And I got friends that are in this vein. Biblically, people say we have a progressive revelation, which means here's the Old Testament. That's how God thought in the Old Testament. Well, no, we, we follow Jesus now. We don't follow the Old Testament because Jesus is different than the Old Testament. And we forget the words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. He actually came to tell us what it's really like and what God really meant because our thinking, because we had drift from God, we don't get what he's really saying. And there are people now that say, well, you know, we're 2,000 years out from Jesus, so guess what? If Jesus were here today, this is really what he'd be saying to us. That's called progressive theology. So you can see why we get in the mess we get into. Because when we decenter ourselves from Christ, from God, drift happens. And as Romans says, we begin to th- think like fools and our hearts become foolish. Now, I think Ecclesiastes is a timeless book, just not an old book. Timeless, I mean, it's relevant then, it's relevant today. And I think Jesus is revealed in this book not by his presence, but by his absence. But think about how our world today is searching for why. I mean, they want that question answered. When I was growing up in high school, there was a popular phrase. I don't know if they used it at all since then or not. But have you ever heard people say, I need to go out and find myself? What does that mean? I need to go out and find myself. But anyway, we had a really good definition of this because there was a cool show on TV then. And it was about a guy trying to find himself, and he was doing it on a motorcycle. It was called Then Came Bronson. And he didn't know what life was about, so he'd hop on his bike and go from town to town doing good. And every high school boy wanted to go home to their parents and say, I need to go find myself, and I need to do it on a motorcycle after I graduate for a year. But we knew not to ask. Because our parents would have said, well, go find yourself while you're working out in the fields. That's good enough. You can ride the motorcycle on the weekends. You know, when we study philosophy, there's three critical questions that are asked. And this is what we see in this book. The first question is, where do we come from? The second question is, where are we going? And the third question is, why we are here? Now, as Christians... Where do we come from? We come from God. We're born and made in the image of God. That's our starting point. And see, in our culture today, the starting point now is sexuality. It's not the image of God. And when you start with the image of God, you create a whole different set of thinking and values from that than starting with sexuality. Where are we going? Well, we know at the end of our life, we go to God. There's other traditions that have no idea. And so they're asking the question, why are we here Well, we know that we are designed by God to do things in accordance with how he has designed us. And there is this diverse unity called the body of Christ that incorporates that. And it becomes a very, well, it becomes an influential movement that cannot be stopped. In fact, Jesus says not even the gates of hell will stop it if it is operating the way it should. 
But take God under the sun, take God out of the picture. How do people answer that question? Are people even asking those questions? Well, answer this for me. By the way, what is the second most published book in the history of American culture? Does anybody know? The first is what? Bible. What's the second? It's the purpose driven life. That's the second. Now, I know people have varied opinions about Rick Warren. But when you create a bestseller about purpose-driven life that starts out with, it's not about you, that says you got to start with God. The only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. And that becomes the second most published book, not only in America, but in the world. And it's because of the revenues and I don't know if you've studied what Rick Warren has done. They kind of flipped the tie thing. They've gone the 90-10 thing. They live on 10 and, and give 90 away. It is funding incredible ministries around the world, freeing people up from slave trade, AIDS kind of work. It is doing remarkable things with money people are putting down that don't even believe in the church. I mean, it's popular both in the Christian and the secular reign. It's bringing salt and light to places that most of us would not go, nor do we have access to. Now, you got to ask yourself, why? Why would a person who doesn't believe in God pick up a religious book and read it? It's because they're on a journey. So, back to Ecclesiastes. When you read this book, and let me say this, it's not a book you give to a person struggling with depression, okay? <laughs> it's very Eeyore-ish. I mean, you start reading this thing saying, wow, this is, this is painful. But when you read this book, think about it as a painting, as a mosaic, as a journal. Think about Solomon just going down through, putting brushstroke after brushstroke. It's hard for our American linear one plus one equals two to fall into this kind of line. But it's about how messy life gets, especially when I set God aside. Now, I realize, even after saying that, some of you must have outlines. Otherwise, you're going to go crazy. You're just hardwired that way. So I found one by Ed Young. He's a preacher in Texas. He's probably the only one brave enough to put an outline to it. And it's part of the whole series title. And here's how it breaks down. It's been there, done that, now what? <laughs> okay? Been there is stage, is chapters one and two. It sets a stage for the search. Done that, he picks out the big five things that we give our lives over to when we set God aside. Hedonism is a fancy word for desires. I'm just going to go out and do what I want to do. You know, I'm going to feel the love. I'm going to take it all in. I am just going to follow impulsively what my desires want me to do. Philosophy is this whole mystical, call it whatever you want, way of life. Intellectualism called education. You know, he went to the best universities of his day, and there were some pretty, pretty important ones then. Materialism, that's all about the money. It's all about the stuff. And believe it or not, he puts a category in called religion. What we're going to discover is that you can actually pursue the meaning of life in a religious context and set God aside. 
It doesn't matter if you're Baptist. doesn't matter what denomination you are. That is a very real possibility that the religion, not the relationship rules. And we'll be looking at that. Now, understand that through this, there's some postscripts. He'll talk about above the sun stuff. He'll just throw a God comment in here and there. So don't let that throw you off. And then final chapters, it's now what? And the question is, how are we going to choose to live? Now, let me say a few things about what I believe today. And then make some closing, really, questions and comments. I believe gone are the days where socially it's beneficial to be in the church. You know, 30, 40 years ago, if you're in the church, that impacted you in a positive way socially. I think those tides are turning. I think gone are the days when where it's publicly acceptable to follow Christ every day of the week. A discussion that I wasn't aware of, and there's a person I have a lot of respect for. His name is Tim Keller. And after the Supreme Court made the decision to overturn the definition of marriage and not put one in there, Tim Keller and about four other evangelical pastors called for a meeting with our current president. And it wasn't to try to get him to change his mind on that, but it was, here's a perfect opportunity for the president to step up and step out and say, listen, you have a chance to unify this country saying, we need to be very tolerant of people's opinions on this. And just because, well, you got the Supreme Court's decision, and there was one of the Supreme Court justices that came out saying some pretty harsh things that if you do not believe in same-sex marriage, and I'll quote, you hate gays, you're a bigot, and you're an enemy of the human race. That's what they said. And so these pastors said, listen, you know, we don't hate people that wrestle with same-sex tendencies. We disagree with you, but we want to lovingly embrace and walk. We value people. We believe everyone's made in the image of God. And his statement was, that he wished the meeting would have gone better, but here was the comment. The comment was, whatever you do inside your church for that hour on a Sunday morning is up to you. We will not interfere with that. But once you step outside the doors of that church, you live by our laws. That's the current thinking. And you see that happening over and over again. I think we live in a day that following Christ, we whisk... Our reputations, we sacrifice our social status, we jeopardize our economic security, we give away our possessions. And depending where God leads you, you could potentially lose your life. If you're unaware that that martyrdom has has reached historic highs in our world in our last decade. Now, I know in our country, we don't experience that on a physical level. But other places, there's story after story that when a Muslim woman or man accepts Christ, their life is in jeopardy. When a teenager accepts Christ, I mean, it is a, if I do this, I may die situation. Let me say this. This book will test your worldview. We all have one. We all have certain biases. We all have 
certain thinking constructs that we operate by, and this book will test that. But here's the question. Ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to follow Jesus? David Platt, in his book, Counterculture, kind of took that question and wrote some other questions around it, and I'd like to close with this. Uh, Are we going to choose comfort or the cross? It's a good question. Are we going to settle for maintenance or sacrifice for mission? Will our lives be marked by indecisive minds or undivided hearts? And those are tough questions. And I don't have the answers to those, but I'll tell you, in our world where, as I began with, in Pakistani, where children are being literally burned alive, You know, are we willing, we willing to take up the cross if God calls us to walk into an environment that way? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'll give this one last illustration. This kind of illustrates what goes on, and many of you know who Tim Tebow is. If you don't, he's a Heisman Trophy winner. And he gets mocked a lot for his character, for his morality, and for his Christianity. And I'm amazed at that because, you know, you got a nice guy. Why would you make fun of that? But anyway, he wrote a, what I call an ecclesiastical kind of blog. And I want to quote back to what he says. He goes, it's important for everyone to consider what they want their lives to represent. And he implored the listeners to consider what they want to see when they introspectively back 40 or 50 years from now and consider their past thoughts and actions. Here's the questions he asked. He's, what am I living for? Am I living for eternal things? Am I living for the here and now? Am I living for money, fame, power? What do I want my life to mean? When we die, there's going to be a dash in between the date we were born and the date we died. And that dash is going to represent everything we did in our life. And what is that dash going to represent? We all have core beliefs. We're going to close with a song that really illustrates the church those core beliefs. It's called I Believe. Let's stand together and worship.